Good morning and greetings to all of you in Jesus' name. And uh, greetings and welcome to the friends joining us in Battle Lake. Uh, some of you are aware, and those of you in Battle Lake are very aware, that uh, last evening uh, you gathered, youth gathered in the Battle Lake community for dodgeball and fun at Battle Lake High School. And uh, I would guess uh, some of you at Battle Lake are probably, maybe you could smell Ben Gay out there in your room, you know. Dodgeball has the ability to strain muscles, and I would guess uh, Pastor Kevin's probably the one suffering the most. So uh, be kind to him this morning, you friends out there. It's good to be gathered in the Lord's name, isn't it? To have uh, a word to gather around. We're traveling through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. The importance of the resurrection, how it changes everything. So I would invite you to turn on your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That powerful chapter about the primacy, the resurrection to our faith and how it is foundational and how it changes everything. Nothing's the same if Christ is truly risen from the dead. So we're going to be looking at verses 20 through 34 of this chapter. And so I invite you to follow along as I read in Jesus' name. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought. And stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Lord, this is your word. You speak to us through it. You've come 
You've given it to us, and we are here, and so we need your help. Give us ears to hear, Lord, what you would say to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to first just kind of get something out of the way because it's a, it's a complicated section. Verse 29. Words are on the screen. Some of you, when you're reading it, you go, wow, look at those. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And so... Um, actually, I'm going to let Pastor Dave Foss tackle that next week. Um, he said, Pastor Rich, leave that section alone. Those of you in Battle Lake, actually, you may not know, but Kevin's an expert on this. So afterwards, would you go up to him and ask him about these verses? Um, these are difficult verses. Let's just say it. You know, I, uh, I read a number of things on it. And the honest, the more I read, the more options I came up with. And I realized that there is no end to the spilling of ink on these verses. And uh, I read one, um, actually it was a devotional by uh, Bo Gertz, who uh, wrote, and he was kind of making a comment about this verse. And he said, this is, these verses we should treat, Martin Luther said this about difficult verses. He said, we should take our hat off. And walk through them, saying, you know, I don't know what this means. And people have ventured many, many um, good verses. And so here's kind of my solution. Um, I don't have a good solution for this, what these verses mean. You know, you can dive into them and read. And there are people that much smarter and gifted in languages than I am who've come up with those verses uh, with ideas and suggestions on them. So... You know, I, I just got to acknowledge that, you know, they're hard and they're difficult. And, you know, basically you need to go with the uh, understanding, you know, the basic biblical rules of interpretation. When something is difficult, you don't uh, make that which is clear foggy in the scripture by, you know, the darkness of a passage that is maybe hard to understand. You allow those patches, passages which are clear and we have clear teaching on baptism and what it means. And this is not one of the clear ones. And it's hard to understand exactly what Paul meant. And it's one of those we'll have to hold too loosely and say, Lord, um, someday it will be made clear. Till then, we will allow those passages of Scripture which are clear to guide us and hold, um, you know, um, loosely to do this and basically have to humble ourselves and say, we're not sure what this means. It's difficult. I'm going to be looking. So enough about that. And, you know, um, that's, that's just what it is. It's kind of hard to say that. But I think it's being honest with kind of what we know about those verses and um, how difficult they are. I'm going to... I, you know, I broke this text into basically five questions. You know, the, 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 the choir sang the, the, the heart of this text. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This is kind of a theological section, but I'm going to, I'm going to tackle these five questions that 
really, I thought, kind of were covered in this text. First one, why do we have to die? Two, who will be made alive? Number three, when will those in Christ be made alive? Fourth question, what does your life say you believe? And last question, who has the last word? So, the first question, why do we have to die? I'm reminded of a funny story I heard with a pastor who was, you know, speaking in children's sermon. He said, you know, he's trying to get the kids to respond and he was maybe missing it. He goes, you know, so children, you know, in the children's sermon, how do you get to heaven? And, the, you know, the kids weren't responding and kept saying, how do you get to heaven? One kid finally said, well, pastor, you got to be dead. <laughs> like it's obvious you know that's the first step why do we have to die verse 21 and 22 give it to us for since death came through a man verse 21 and in verse 22 for as in Adam all die Paul is saying that Adam is our representative. He is our head. And because he sinned, <clears throat> death came on all men. It is the reason that we all die. We call this inherited or original sin. You heard Pastor Foss talk about confirmation coming up. Questions being asked on Saturday. I thought, you know what? I'm going to read question 112. What is inherited sin? From the Catechism, it says, Inherited sin is the inborn tendency to do to wickedness. Not just to do wickedness, but to wickedness. Deep corruption and evil inclination of my human nature with no power to believe in God or save myself by my good works. Psalm 51.5, David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. In Romans 5.12, verses we looked at as we walked through Romans this last year. As sin entered the world through one man, what Paul is saying here in Corinthians, came through Adam, death came to all men because all sin. Inherited sin. Now, there's a sense sometimes, and I've dealt with this with people that they've walked through, you know, the reality of our brokenness. We think about the fact that we inherited sin from Adam. There can be a sense of like, wow, one man has passed this on to all of us. It feels like maybe unfair to some extent, you know. But, you know, the reality is, I think, that we all feel the, the tug and the pull of, of that inborn tendency to evil. But we also recognize the, the, our, our tendency and, and the, the, our longing or the ability that we have so quickly to affirm Adam's decision. Now, quickly we buy into and choose to do acts of sin that coincide with our sinful nature. We are people 
who have inherited from Adam both the inclination and the guilt, longing to do that which is evil, and the result of brokenness and sin, the end result, death. So if you're sitting next to your dad, turn to him and say, thank you very much for what you have passed on to me. I'm very grateful for giving to me this inheritance. (laughs) And they can, in turn, turn to their parents. (laughs) And on we go, don't we? We inherit sin. It's passed on to us. We are born broken, sinful people. We commit acts of sin because our heart is sinful. It's the way the tree grows. So we not only inherited sin, but we inherited the result of sin, the wages of sin that Paul says in Romans is death. Death comes to all men because all have sinned. So why do we have to die? It's a natural result going away from the one who is life. The result of our choice, it's separation from God, resulting in a life that is alienated from our Creator. That's the bad news. Why do we have to die? Because of our father, Adam, passing death on to all men. Who will be made alive. Good news. Look at verse 21, 22, and 23. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Notice kind of the progression that that is happening here, uh, that Paul is leading us through. He starts out basically in the the kind of the philosophical or theological premise that death comes through a man, so resurrection comes through a man. Doesn't let us know who that is, does he? He's obviously, we know where he's going. But he's saying just... As we have one representative that has given to us death, Adam, our father, through whom we inherit sinful nature, broken, so also through a man comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, and then he names it, he names, you know, through a man comes death, through a man comes resurrection. Then verse 22, as in Adam, he names it, it's a person. So in Christ All will be made alive. In Christ. A beautiful little word. In. You know, we've all had that feeling sometimes of being on the outside. Wondering if you belong. 
coming up to a group, you know, you've come up to a group sometime and you feel like, just socially, you may feel like, oh, I don't belong here. Or you just, we always tend to go like, oh, is, this, is this my place? Do I belong? Am I in? Resident Adam, all die in Christ. All will be made alive. Are we brought into Christ through the word, sacraments? We're baptized into Christ. It's a beautiful phrase. Joined with him so we may be raised to new life. We receive in, with and under the bread and the wine, the body of blood of Christ. He comes to us. He invites us. All who are willing, come. All who are thirsty, come by food and drink. He comes to us in his word and says, All those who come, I will not cast out. In Christ. But each in turn says, Christ, the first fruits, the first to be raised. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. good to belong, you know? It's like, we like to have, you know, things in our wallet that say we belong to someone, identify us, you know? It's like, when you're traveling, you want to hold on to your passport, and you always keep asking, where is it? Because why? It tells you, I belong in the United States of America. I belong. I've got proof. Through the word and the sacraments, God is saying, you belong to me. You are mine. We're claimed as his own. We're adopted into his family. Embraced. The wounds of Christ. Branded with his name. Called his. Who will be made alive? Those who are in Christ. Through the man, Jesus Christ. We belong to him. Third question, when will those in Christ be made alive? When will those in Christ be made alive? Back to the text. Verse 23, but each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When will those in Christ be made alive? Well, this text accentuates the ending of the story. When he comes, it says, verse 23, then verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. There is, in our understanding of of God's salvation history, an already and not yet. 
There is the understanding in, in that we rightly understand and lift up the, res, the death and the resurrection of Christ, his death on the cross, and the resurrection as the pinnacle moment of all history. It's when the victory was won. But there is a sense mop-up work that's still happening. All of the results of Christ's death, his resurrection, have not been yet received by us. We're in between, in a sense, in that season. When the victory's been won, and yet we haven't received every benefit of the victory. There's still battle going on. We fight. We grieve. We struggle. Came upon the story of a Japanese soldier from World War II, Hiro Onada. Here's his picture. December of 1944, young 20-year-old man, he went to Lubang Island in the Philippines. Okay? Just a few months later, that island was overrun by Allied forces, landed on that island in the Philippines, which is, of course, a country of islands. So it's about three months later. Okay, he's only been there three months. His job as a soldier with the Japanese army was to infiltrate and be kind of a a resource gatherer, intelligence officer, so he wasn't a front lines guy. He was kind of out in the community trying to gather information, hiding. So when the Allied forces landed, he went into hiding with three other guys in 1945 in February when Allied forces landed. Of course, in August of 45, Japan surrenders to Allied forces, I think which became official and formalized September 2nd of 45. So only about nine months after he lands there in Philippine Islands, you know, the war is over. Japan has surrendered, but he's hiding. Still thinking because he was told, do not surrender, we will come and get you. He was not found, but he was heard of because of little incursions he would make. And sometimes he would strike and steal and use a small group of men. In 1974, a college student, Mario Suzuki, finds him in the jungle. And this college student just kind of said in a way, he said, I want to go to the Philippines. I'm going to, and literally this is what, if my source is reputable, which I believe it is. He said, I'm going to find the abominable snowman, a panda, and Hiro Onada, he said. And he found him hiding in the jungle, still believing that the war was being fought, unwilling to surrender, this man was. In fact, what Japan had to do was to find his officer, his, uh, his officer in the one rank above him, who was at that time operating the bookstore in Japan in 1974, and bring him to the Philippines and tell him it's time to surrender. You have a picture of him laying down his sword. Our enemies, Satan, 
the broken, sinful world, our own nature, its dominion, its authority and power, they will be destroyed in time. The brokenness will end. But for now, the battle still wages, doesn't it? And sometimes it feels like it wins. For some folks, the darkness is deep. The pain is profound. Those who are in Christ will be made alive. When He comes, He will bring life. Those who have died in Christ will be made alive. He is the first fruits. He is kind of the early crop, so to speak. <laughs> he has been raised. We wait. We long for His coming because then He will bring life and He will put all of our enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to face is death. He must reign until He's put all His enemies under His feet. So we say, Come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Come. And we wait. Fourth question. What is your life? Say you believe. Paul makes kind of a turn in this text after he speaks about the, the power and the hope that we have in the resurrection and the promise that one day we will be made alive. What does your life say you believe? And then verse 32, if I, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Many of us hear it. Bad company corrupts good morals, don't we? It kind of comes into our head. Verse 34. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So Paul is writing to people who have denied the resurrection. And he says, or maybe they have acknowledged the resurrection verbally. They say, oh yeah, we believe in the resurrection. But their life says otherwise. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. You know what? If the dead are not raised, let's live like it. Let's be consistent. But here's the problem. We are so prone to self-deception. We are so prone to thinking that we can acknowledge or say or speak that Christ is going you know, to rise from the dead, but we live like he's not. And we're not. We live like this world is all there is. Functional atheists. You know, acknowledging because maybe our culture or surroundings we're in at, the, at that time, you know, kind of makes us feel like, oh yeah, we've got to say, you know, we believe in Jesus and that we're going to rise from the dead someday. And that, you know, the next life is so much better than this. But our life shows up completely different story. A commitment, a full-out commitment to this life as it. With no thinking about the life to come. Do we live, do we live like this life 
It's all there is. You know, and uh, some of you probably talked about with friends. I did some thinking this last week about a topic or a phrase that we use in our kind of a a popular one these days. We talk about, well, what's on your bucket list, my friends? So just think about that for a minute. You know, bucket list means you got a you know list of ten things you got to do before you what kick the bucket, right? Because you know the understanding is you've got to get this stuff done before this life is done. Because once this life is done, all chance to do kind of good, fun stuff and see all these places on earth, it's over. And we've got to pack it in quickly and get it all done here on this earth. Because why? If it is true, my friends, that we will rise from the dead. And if it is true that the next life is far beyond what we could think or imagine or conceive and no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. If that is so much better, do we really have to be in that bigger rush to pack all the thrill and enjoyment and excitement into this life? Can't we say, you know what? I may not get to my bucket list, but man, he's got a barrel full waiting for me. Really? Does our, does our, our, does our thinking is just so constrained by what we know and see and experience and we, we see, well, yeah, God, you've got some great stuff promised for me, but man, I've got to take care of myself right now. Wow. Our life speaks what we really believe. So we go, oh, Lord, forgive me. My eyes being turned into myself. What does your life say you believe? Paul says, stop sinning. You know, we kind of tend to think of, well, they're doing some bad stuff. You know what? Sin is it's not seeing life as it is. It's not living life as it truly is. It's living that this life is all there is when God has said there's more. As a follower of Jesus, we say, I'm not going to be living just for this life. I'm going to have God's view of eternity and his values in mind. So when I live my life and give myself to things, it's always going to be with the reality of eternity in mind. So my life will be a, a, a service to the one who knows the end. I'm not going to be sucked into being misled by values of this age. Lies that come to me. Last question. Who has the last word? Hmm. We've read these words already. We just got to end there. The end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. He must reign until he's put all power and authority, it says, Dominion. He's destroyed it all. You ever feel overwhelmed by the news you get? The darkness you read in the paper? You ever get overwhelmed 
by the darkness of your own soul? You wonder, when is this? When will it end, Jesus? <laughs> when will the sadness, the hurt that people experience, the brokenness that we feel in our own families? The end will come when he will hand over to his father the kingdom. He's destroyed all powers. The last one to be destroyed is death. So I can't you wait till you open up the obituary page. See, death. <laughs> death has died. It was declared terminally ill at the cross and the resurrection. And now, when Christ comes, you will be pronounced dead. Jesus will have the last word. It allows us to face the darkness that we experience around us and to call a thing what it is. You know, not kind of minimize or kind of sugarcoat the, the darkness of the authority and dominion power we feel around us, which goes against God's way. We call a thing what it is because we know who has the last word. Jesus Christ, the victor. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. We walk a hard road at times. Simonsons are walking a hard road. Some of you have walked that road, and others. We serve a risen Savior. Reigns, he will come and establish his rule again. Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you for the victory that you've won. Thank you that we can hold on to that by faith. Lord, it's hard sometimes when death, we experience it. We feel it in our own soul, we experience it in our homes. It comes, it's hard. And we hold to the promise, the hope, the resurrection. You're coming again when death will be brought to an end. Gives us comfort, peace, and joy to know that what we experience now, the hard times, are but for a short season. That you will be victorious in the end. Give us faith, Lord, to embrace that. In your name we pray. Amen.